Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. The episode title for this week, Sherry, is Danger from Within. Ooh, that sounds ominous. Yeah. That was the word I was going to use. I know. That's why I stole it right out of your brain. I was thinking Sleeping with the Enemy would be a good title, but turns out that's already taken. Yeah, I think that's a pretty famous movie. Yeah, pretty yeah. great movie. You know what? We should watch it again. Although it's a little disturbing. It's a lot disturbing. Yeah. Danger from within. Well, we'll get to that in just a second, but let's start with a listener question. Sounds good. Hey, listeners, if you'd like to ask us a question, not a clinical question because we're not clinical people, if you just want to ask a question of a couple people who've been around the block a few times on this recovery deal, send your question to matt at soberandunashamed.com. Here we go. Since you see and hear both sides of the alcoholic's journey through shout sobriety and the loved one's journey through echoes of recovery... What commonalities do you think there are? What blind spots might we have since we don't see both sides? Ooh, good question. Those are very good questions. Yeah, questions. Do you want to take a stab? You want me to go first? Um, I, I'm going to... This is what jumped out to me when yeah. you Give read us the, the question. So, the blind spots. Okay. I think there can be a variety of blind spots. Oh, yeah. And not every one recovery program is going to work you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Correct. So you do have to adjust and pivot and, you know, try new things and, and do different techniques for both sides. Yeah. I think the number one thing is community. It's not something that you can necessarily do alone. I know we've had questions where, like, why didn't you do any kind of community recovery? You kind of built your community through the Shout Sobriety after you had done bibliotherapy and done a lot of research. For you, a researcher... Someone who's always asking questions. That worked really well for you, and um, you were you were good with that. And then you kind of built your community to kind of make it happen for you and what you thought would work for others. Um, I didn't. I didn't. I thought, and you thought we didn't. I didn't need any recovery. So yeah. that's a big blind spot. Huge blind spot. And I think another huge. Blind I thought sp- all you needed was for me to stop drinking, and then you'd be fine. Right. No idea how much damage had been done. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is I think there's another blind spot where people think that once the alcohol is removed, then all the problems should go away, but your alcoholic isn't going to be able to hear the resentments and isn't going to be able to withstand um, understanding that you're in pain for a while. Mm -hmm. They have to get healthy. And then in the meantime, you have to get healthy and find a community that supports you. So then maybe you're not, because this is our experience. I came at you fully charged, claws out some of the times when I was unburdening things to you. Yeah. And that didn't go well because you weren't ready yet. Okay, that's fair. So I think you both have to give yourself some time and then you go back and work on the marriage and the relationship and the issues. Whether the marriage stays together or not, well into sobriety, like, you know, no. And that was another blind spot. Because there were times that it wasn't, when the alcohol was removed and we were working on the relationship, there was still a lot of disconnect between you and I. Yeah. And that was probably hard for you to manage 
if you hadn't been in a healthier spot. So you just had to kind of suck it up and realize. And I don't want to sound like, oh, you're so tough and you sucked it up. But I think you had to just kind of work through it and then keep yourself and your sobriety and your healing at the forethought, you know, forefront of your mind. I did have to suck it up, but I didn't do it because I'm tough. I did it because I ran out of all the other options. Mm-hmm. It's important for us to remind listeners that it took me 10 years to get permanently sober, 10 years of attempts and failures. And the point you made a minute ago about how you kind of came at me with claws out sometimes, I, there's a flip side of that. I came at you in a heavy way looking for support a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until, again, not because we read about it or we were educated by a therapist. It came through trial and error. It wasn't until you stopped being there for me as it relates to support that I realized my only option is to figure this out on my own. Again, like you said, bibliotherapy, which is a real deal. That's where I got my initial community from. But then building community... And, you know, doing all the research and all the learning and not glomming on to you for that. And that's the really counterintuitive part of this. But but I totally agree with you about the blind spots. I, I mean, I you you just sit down and bam, I hit you with this stuff. But I actually think about it in advance. And those are the a lot of what you said is what I wrote down. Uh, the fact that you not only needed help, but you deserve help. And neither of us recognized that initially. And then I, you know, the other, the way I've worded it in my notes is too much support actually hinders my ability to find self-esteem because I'm relying on you too much. And, you know, as much as we want to rely on our partners, this is an area where if you were, you know, not, not even just enabling the act of addiction, but still carrying some of those enabling characteristics into the recovery, doing things for me, you know, uh, spending too much time as a cheerleader or making life easier for me. Then making that sure actually, the environment is no one's going to tempt it. That's right. No one's going to say a crossword. Keeping the kids away from me in the yeah. evening when I'm, you know, when I'm struggling or whatever, because it's right. the witching hour. Yeah. All of that, all that's going to do is prolong the suffering and uh, prevent me from realizing that I needed to do the work to get over the hump. Right, and I mean, that that part of it is not that we were trying to disrupt your life, but life was going to happen in this house, whether you were a part of it or not. Yeah. You know, but then yeah. that's part of like, that's part of what like an AA community or other communities do is help you kind of get back into life after you've kind of, made the decision not to drink and you find your community, those are people that you have as your community, but kind of get you socialized back into, to like life. Yeah. Your life, work life, family life. Yeah. The the other, the other outside interactions you have are typically more harsh than the one you have inside your relationship. And what I mean by that is if I were to go to work and drink at work, I'd get fired. That's harsh, right? Mm-hmm. If I had drink and drive, I'm going to jail. That's harsh. If I change my mind at home and decide I'm going to relapse at home, you might yell and scream, but that's not nearly as harsh as getting fired or getting arrested. So because we look at 
at, at that home life as kind of the soft underbelly, that's where we typically, uh, you know, relapse and, and backslide. And, and even if we don't relapse, we, we're very emotional and we cry about how hard it is. And I don't mean cry in a derogatory way. We're just very emotional. And that's the only place that we show our weakness. And because the chances of you, you know, turning on your heels and leaving are low and I know it. So I know I can, uh, you know, all the ugly can come out for you and it's not going to have the same negative consequences as if the ugly came out elsewhere. And the fact is, I mean, we, by our own, by drinking, by addiction, we've created this just negativity that we have to deal with. And, you know, yes, there is learning and there is research and there are support groups and there's all the things, 12 steps if you're a 12 stepper, uh, changing your nu nutrition plan, understanding brain chemistry, the list goes on and on of the work of recovery. But the fact is, there's pain involved and you just have to do it and suffer through the pain. Well, you have to, yeah. And, and if, if I come to you and you coddle me every time I'm in pain, it's going to be harder for me to go over to the hump, not easier. Yeah. You cause... think you're making it easier, but you're actually making it harder. I'm not saying you specifically because you're kind of a hard ass. So you did make it harder eventually. You were soft for a while, but then you drew the line. Sorry, go ahead. I cut you off twice. It's okay. I say you have to learn to manage your feelings. First, you have to be able to figure them out as the drinker. I also think you have to figure that out as the partner of the alcoholic because I had suppressed so many of my feelings that anger was only anger and frustration and annoyance and dislike was the only thing that like crept to the top. So I had to kind of manage those emotions and I had to kind of evaluate like why why is this making me upset? So what if he's sitting in there sulking right now? It, we're not doing anything wrong, you know, as the rest of the family. He, you know, so I had to like kind of evaluate my feelings and not be wanting to go in and try to make things better for you or try to be like, what's wrong? And, you know, because then you were just going to tell me the stuff that I didn't want to hear. I mean, I think... Oh, no, but I can't drink. Whoa. You know, and I'd be like, fucking you got yourself into it, you know? So... I think there's a blessing in that you were married to a big talker because, I, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, so I want to hear you respond to this, but I feel like you knew that if you opened that door a crack... Oh, God, it would just get... It would be hours of me whining, right? Yes. If if someone is married to someone who doesn't talk very much, they're probably more prone to go say, what's wrong? Tell mm -hmm. me about it. Because they know they aren't going to have their evening occupied for the foreseeable right. future. Right. Which is interesting. But I think that it's just it's something that was another blind side. You have to learn to manage your emotions because you don't have the... You're not aware of the emotions of the drinker because you've stunted that. And you just got to work through it and, as they say, sit with it. So let's talk about commonalities between the recovery of the alcoholic and the recovery of the loved one slash spouse. Well, that was one right there, I think. Both of you have to work on really evaluating your emotions yeah. and assess your emotions, put names to your emotions. I mean, just kind of like we do with little kids. Are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you, you know? Yeah. I don't remember what that acronym is, but most people know what we're talking about. Yeah. So well, that's one. In recovery, it's halt. That's one halt. of them. Halt. That's Hungry, it. Yeah. angry. Lonely, or, lonely tired. or tired. Yep. Yeah. So both parties, I think, have to do that. Yeah. I 
for you know that again i i read this listener question a few days ago and had more time to process it than you did but the the kind of one and only commonality i wrote down is that for both parties it's all about self-esteem getting to a place where you feel strong independently so that you then can work on the relationship because working on the relationship when you're both so badly wounded that's really i mean you can work together on your own individual recovery, but you're, you're not going to make a lot of progress. We didn't make a lot of progress on our relationship until we started to feel better about ourselves. So as the loved one, as the spouse, you've got to recover from the gaslighting and the denials and the lies and being told that you're not really seeing the things you're seeing with your own eyes. And that's not an easy process, getting your your instincts back and you know, dismissing the insecurities that have been built inside you. And then as the drinker, it's obvious. You've got piles of shame, um, all kinds of things that you've compartmentalized and tried to push away. But actually dealing with those, coming to grips with them, getting some sobriety under your belt so that you can start to feel good about yourself. Not not good about yourself as in egomaniac, I'm a billionaire and I, you know, I'm the most important person in the world. But good about yourself as in, you know, I don't self-medicate. I'm not causing re- causing havoc for my family. Uh, my job is no longer in jeopardy. I'm putting one foot in front of the other. So that self-esteem, that is essential to both people's recovery. And I, to me, that's the big commonality. And so for you, Sherry, until we got, until we realized you needed recovery too and you found a therapist and you started doing the work, you know, you were stuck not only in anger from the resentments you felt toward me, but you're also stuck with dealing with some of, I mean, I think for the most part, you, you, you handled this really well, but there was some regret for how you dealt with my alcoholism. There were times when you flew off the handle in reaction. There were times when you wish you had done something different than what you did. And so getting past that and feeling good about yourself was important for you too, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, great listener question. Thank you, listener. If you'd like to ask one too, send that listener question. Do you hear my voice crack there? <laughs> yes. It's weird. Send that listener question to the prepubescent host of this show, <laughs> Matt. Gotta do it again. Matt at soberandunashamed.com. All right. Danger from within. Let's talk about it. I want to give an analogy that's a stretch, I know. But, you know, there's lots of cop movies out there, right? So if I talk about cop movies, people will know what I'm talking about. What's your favorite cop movie, Sherry? It's got to be Beverly Hills Cop, doesn't it? I mean, you and I are old, but Eddie Murphy? I mean, you can't get any better than that. Does it have to be a serious cop movie, or can it be a funny cop movie? Well, Beverly Hills Cop's a serious, or a comedy. Comedy, but it has serious. I was going to say, there's one with Sandra Sandra Bullock and um, Molly, or... Oh, God, what's her name? Molly Shannon? No, not Molly Shannon. Uh, she was the gal from Mike and Molly, and her name is on the tip of my tongue. Oh, yeah. Uh, everyone knows her. Melissa, Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy, yeah. yeah. I think that one's really <laughs> kind of funny. I love Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. You know, I couldn't remember her name either. Well, so picture a cop movie. Let's make it very dramatic. This okay. one's not a comedy. Two partners are driving down the road together, and... Part this I'm going to get graphic for a second, so pardon me, a little trigger warning. One cop pulls out his gun and shoots the other partner. Oh my gosh. 
What a plot twist. Never would have been expected. Oh, yeah. That's a dramatic analogy, but you got to think that partnership among police officers, it's got to be pretty tight. You're depending on each other Mm -hmm. to protect each other and to save each other's lives. And if one of them turns on the other one, it's got to be shocking. Like, the most shocking thing, you know, the thing you would least expect when you get up in the morning is to have your partner turn on you in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what happens in relationships with alcoholism. That's what happened in our marriage. That's what happens in all of these marriages. And I know, again, that might be a cheesy analogy or it might be an overly dramatic analogy you might be thinking. But here's the reason I make that analogy. This is the hardest point to get across to people. I get pushback on this or just flat out ignored when in other areas we don't get ignored. If we talk about, I don't know, resentment processing or brain chemistry, people are like, oh, yeah, oh, that's interesting. But when we talk about how your partner has turned on you and that's where the trauma comes from, at least the people on my side of the fence tend to be like, "Uh, I think you're blowing that out of proportion. Mm. I don't think we are. I don't think we are. Think about... The marriage pact of mutual trust and protection. When you and I got married, the I, at the time I wasn't, you know, um, conscious enough or intellectual enough, or I just wasn't a thinker enough to process really what the marriage meant. It meant to me that I was getting my milk from the same cow for the rest of my life, and. <laughs> I wish people could see your face right now. You don't like that? No. Just, yeah. But anyhow. Just move on, right? Okay. It meant I was getting my milk from the same cow for the rest of my life. Moving on isn't done by repeating it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it meant I was only having sex with you from now on. And not better. Okay. Keep it up and then there won't be. But anyhow, you're committed to a relationship with one person. Right. Where you're going to be monogamist. Yeah. You're going to be trustworthy. You're going to be reliable and dependable. Exactly. I'm going to trust you. You're going to trust me. I'm going to protect you. You're going to protect me. This isn't some male chauvinist gender thing. There's just as much protection that goes female to male. There is. And if you, if, if, if a um, relatively physically uh, less strong woman marries a you know big bodybuilder dude um, and you're just focused on the physical characteristics of protection then you're missing the point mm-hmm. you're gonna protect me from other people saying bad things about me yeah now you are physically tougher than me so in our case it I'm not is so mutual much tougher protection. I'm just meaner you have a higher pain tolerance you're stronger in a lot of areas. So, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't know why you think you're not tougher. But anyway, um, it's a mutual protection thing. I hate the wedding vows, right? We've talked about this before. But I hate the till death do us part and the in sickness and in health piece because that gets thrown up in people's faces. You know, oh, now you're talking about leaving after I've been an alcoholic for 10 years and I've, you know, lost my job and our finances are a mess and I'm mean to the kids. But you can't do that because we said till death do us part once in front of a room full of people. I think that's awful. Mm -hmm. And I would strike that from the wedding vows if I could. Likewise, well, if alcoholism is a disease, then you can't leave me because you promised to stay with me in sickness and in health. Yeah. Never realizing that 
there is a cure to this disease. Yeah. It doesn't have to kill you. That's right. Well, and there's a whole... have to continue. There's a whole litany of lifestyle diseases, (laughs) metabolic diseases that are brought on by choices. And we're actually going to have an expert guest on the podcast next week who is going to... We're going to spend a lot of time talking about metabolic diseases and lifestyle diseases. And um, that's going to be a fascinating episode. I hope you all tune in. But yeah, just... In sickness and in health, I mean, let's compare it to the thing that is, there's a most direct correlation between the act and the illness, and that is smoking. If I smoked three packs of cigarettes a day, and then I got lung cancer, and you were mad about it, I'd be hard-pressed to find a way to be mad at you for that. So, I think the same holds true as it relates to alcoholism. If I'm going to, if I'm going to go down this path and make myself sick, then I can't just lean on these stupid vows to uh, to make you stay bonded to me. Mm-hmm. But so, so I don't think of marriage as in sickness or in health and until death do us part. I think of marriage as this pact of mutual trust and protection. And so, when the person you trust the most, your protector, your mutual protector, goes both ways, becomes the most dangerous person in your life, that creates massive trauma. So people are often downplaying on both sides of the fence, the loved ones and the alcoholics. Oh, it really wasn't that bad. It wasn't that much trauma. Okay, if you want to say your husband never beat you, so there's not trauma, I get where you're coming from. Physical abuse is massive trauma. But here's where the trauma lies. The person you trust the most in life has now become the most dangerous person in your life. Most of us live you know, whatever, middle-class, suburban lives, whether, you know, we're not afraid of being attacked by a wolf and, you know, we don't go down dark alleys, so the chances of armed robbery, we keep those relatively low. So you and I can interact with all the people, and we interact with a lot of people on a daily basis out there and not have much danger, you know? Crossing the street might be the most danger that we see. So if you interact with lots of people and none of them are dangerous, then yes, if... The person that you live with is lying to you and denying the truth and gaslighting you and uh, has mood swings and is mean to your kids and is making your life miserable. That person has become the most dangerous person in your life. So, can you tell I'm fired up about this? Yeah. So, if the person that you are bonded to in trust and protection is now the most dangerous person in your life, that's a big fucking deal. Back to the cop movie. That's yes, like your partner turning on you. Nobody would watch that cop movie and not go, oh, can you believe that he got killed by his partner? Unexpected twist. Well, guess what? When you get married, it's an unexpected twist. If your husband, if you're sleeping with the enemy, that's not what we sign up for. Yeah. Whew. Wow. Got that Can all you out. Take a, take a moment. Yeah, we should just end the episode. I'm spent. <laughs> we'll just pull the soapbox out from under you now. Yeah. You want to react to that? You agree? Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, because people don't really think about emotional trauma that happens. And the trauma doesn't have to be, like you said, like being beaten. But the emotional trauma, the verbal abuse, the silent treatment, neglect, emotional neglect... You know, having to make choices that even are just financial. And I know it sounds silly, but 
having to choose like, oh, well, well, the kids did, you know, this one summer camp they really liked last year, but we can't do it because, you know, he got a DUI. And so we have these legal bills to pay for. And those are things that build resentment. Yeah. Those like that, you know. If your neighbor does that or your coworker does that, you might find a little empathy. But beyond that, you just don't really give a shit. But when your bonded trust and safety partner does that, wham, big Mm -hmm. deal. Big deal. People say all the time in these alcoholic relationships, it's just not that bad. He's not beating on me. It's not that bad. But, you know, I'll give you another analogy that some people will think doesn't fit, but I think does. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, I coach high school soccer. So every year I go through concussion training. And one of the big things that they drive home over and over again is that there's no such thing as a minor concussion. We used to think there was. We don't think that anymore. There's no such thing as, oh, he just got his bell rung, rub some dirt on it, and keep playing. I mean, we used to say those stupid things. But a concussion is a brain injury. There's no such thing as a small brain injury. Your brain being injured is a big deal. We need to treat it as such. And I would say, if I am standing in line at the grocery store and someone's mean to me, that's minor. If I uh, pull out in front of someone and they flip me the bird, who you know? ultimately, who cares? Maybe I'm frustrated for 30 seconds, but otherwise, who cares? If your partner, your bonded partner, turns on you, that's like a concussion. And there is no such thing as a small concussion. It's a big deal. Well, and with... That's my last analogy for the whole episode, too, by the way. Just yeah, Just want to get I bet. that out there. Yeah, I bet. Um, Unless I come up with another one. But... With thinking of like the turning on you, those are things that start out small that break down the trust. And then as the disease progresses, it's more common. They're bigger things. And that constant worry of, and in state of hyper vigilance is like, are they going to turn on me if I bring this up to them? So that is trauma in itself, living in that, you know, elevated state, like that anxious, anxiety driven state. Because you are, you know, you start out small with maybe some smaller things, but it's always going to get bigger. Because in the beginning, you've taught your partner how to treat you. Oh, it's okay this time. You know, I forgive you this time. And it just builds and builds and builds until it's bigger stuff. Just like the progression of the disease of alcohol. It starts out small, but it just grows and grows and grows. And then... Like you've said before, you're you're willing to go lower and sink lower to protect your ability to drink. So you you as the drinker don't really think or even care what you're doing to the partner, but breaking down that trust, that's... I don't know about don't care. I would say don't know. <laughs> don't know, yeah. Yeah, don't... Aren't aware of how Absolutely much you're doing not. it. So what if we got in an argument? Everyone gets in an argument. I mean, that's part of being married is having an argument. Why are you making such a big deal about it? We don't, we just don't recognize the damage that we're doing because alcoholic arguments are not rational. They aren't grounded in fact and truth and opinion. They are grounded in intoxication. And so they leave a different mark than, you know, if you and I, six years into sobriety, were to argue about what color to paint a room in the house, first of all, we wouldn't because we just do whatever you want, which is fine. When it comes to paint color. But that would be a normal argument. I, I might have justification and you might have justification. We would compromise and we would figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's not, 
That's not what alcoholic arguments look like. There's not two rational sides in a compromise. So for anyone to say, oh, we argue, but everybody argues. It's a load of crap. If you're arguing while intoxicated, then uh, that's going to leave that's going to leave a mark, a not good mark. Mm-hmm. All right, so I want to ask you some questions and get your reaction. Questions about how things felt when I was drinking. So, how did it feel when I came home on a daily basis? If you had been home, I know we both you know, worked outside the home and sometimes home and sometimes not. But if, if you were the one that was home and I came home, did that, did you have a nervous system reaction? How did you feel when I came home when I was in active addiction and you just kind of didn't know what to expect or what to expect from the evening? Um, well, I think if I knew that something had happened at our business, I would come home when you would come home, I would be very anxious, wondering how you were going to handle the situation at home behind closed doors, whether or not you were going to overdrink or get snappy with the kids, do both, or you were going to go into problem-solving mode. Like, whether you were going to try to, like, fix it from home, you know? So, it was high anxiety, just the unknown. Because there could be so many different ways you could react to a situation. Um, I think in the beginning... Very inconsistent. Yeah. And I think in the beginning I felt okay about it. And then as the, you know, as your drinking progressed and, you know, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And then towards the end I was like, oh God, I can't even, I don't even want him home. Yeah. You know, because the day had been calm. Even with maybe four young kids or four not-so-young kids, um, by the time you quit drinking, it was still like, ugh. So I enjoyed that you coached soccer after the bakery would close down for the day. Because then we just got more time not to deal with you. That's funny. And then I would always be like, oh, good, it's later in the night, so he can't drink as much. That's funny because I would feel guilt around that because... You know, it started out, I coached soccer. Well, I coached soccer before we had kids, and that was a job, right? But then when we had kids, it started out, I was just kind of like a parent who was pitching in like any parent would. And as it grew and grew and grew, and I eventually started coaching in high school, and it was much more time-consuming, and it was a job again, I felt really guilty by taking on that role because I felt like that was time out of the house, and you were probably disappointed by that. This is actually the first time I've really thought about this. I th- probably the reason you never pushed back on that is because, like you said, it was time when I wasn't home. It was time when I wasn't drinking. So you were you weren't supportive because you wanted me to follow my passion. You were supportive because you wanted me the hell away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you had later games or games that were further away and you had to stay, you know, for the games, I was like, thank God, especially if it was on a Thursday or Friday. Um, night, drinking nights. Your drinking nights, yeah. I mean, you didn't have a whole lot of Saturday games, but if you did, I always looked at that like a bonus too. Was like, well, he can't start drinking at noon, you know, mowing the lawn or whatever, or getting the yard ready or raked or shoveling, whatever was going on, you know. Yeah. Um, I did not really like it when you did play in an adult league 
on Thursday nights because Friday morning was a morning that I went into our bakery, so I had to get up early. And most of the time I was lying there and I could kind of doze off, but then I would hear you come in and I was always like, fuck, what am I going to get? Yeah. And so then I couldn't sleep well the rest of the night. Yeah. That seems fair. Yeah. That was fair of me. If I'm going to be gone, you're not going to sleep well. It's pretty great. Well, you know, it's but great, then sometimes great side you, attribute of alcohol. Yeah, sometimes you would come into the bed, and then sometimes you'd go downstairs, and I'd be like, "Oh no, what's he doing downstairs in the family?" Well, room? drinking more, of you course, know? you knew I'm that. Like, yeah, yeah, I would get some food, and then you know something nutritious like some nachos or <laughs> some old some leftover pizza or something, and I usually leftover chips. dinner, but. That you ignored if it was healthy, if you had already drank it. Oh, 100%. If I came home from soccer, soccer and there was something nutritious meat. and delicious, that would be passed over for a bag of chips or something. Yeah. Um, how did it feel to protect the kids from their own father? Gross. It, oh, because I really thought that you're going to be a great dad. And I didn't think I would ever have to do that. And they would be worried. That's, I mean, like I would be worried about, you know, me. If I were to go out with friends, I feel like you kind of kept it together most times. But then even just early on, like when we... You know, we were in a rental house and we had the bakery and we had our three-year-old and one-year-old. Like on Thursdays when I would work until close and sometimes I would, Thursdays or Fridays I would come in I would be like, oh my God, like what situation? Like how long had our son been sitting in the outside swing and you were playing with Catherine and you thought you were doing your fatherly duty and he was in this safe, secure swing. But I was like, but you would have beer and I'm like, or a glass of vodka I, you know, I'd be like, how long has he been sitting there? I wonder, like, has he, you even touched him for a couple of hours? You know, I mean, you would go by and push him, but, you know, or Catherine would push him and you would be sitting out there in the chair. Yeah. So it started way back then. Yeah, it's funny. Even right after I asked that question, you started talking. The question again, how did it feel to protect the kids from their father? I almost jumped back in and said, oh, but not physically because I never I never beat the kids. So again, I, I'm going back to what I said earlier about how it's still trauma even if it's not physical abuse. We seem to societally draw the line, and it's getting better as there's more mental health awareness, but we seem to societally draw the line at someone taking a beating. Mm -hmm. But that there was never something you feared. No. But you did fear neglect. Uh-huh. And... Or, you know... <clears throat> or verbal, you know, raising yeah. your voice and yeah. mad irrationally. Yeah, because you could be great one minute and having fun at the dinner table, you know, and letting them joke around. But if it just got a little too loud or somebody did a little something extra because they're kids and they can get really ramped up, then you would be like, that's enough! You know, like... I don't even think that's fair. I don't even think it would have to be that they... Did extra? They went too far. Well, you, would, you <clears throat> my would mood could just change. They could yeah. be consistently laughing and joking, and then all of a sudden, right? They haven't necessarily escalated or 
gotten sillier. I just decided, not, and not on that a conscious enough. level, but in my intoxicated brain, decided, well, that was enough, so I'm going to start yelling about it and calming them down. <laughs> calming them down by yelling at them. Yeah, I can, uh, I can only imagine. And, you know, when the question is, how did it feel to protect the kids from their own father? When I think about times when you were out of the house and I knew when you were coming home from work or whatever, I probably did try to set the stage to look better than it necessarily had been. So maybe, again, when the kids were younger, maybe they had been plopped down in front of a movie for a couple hours. Uh, you know, and I'm just relaxing, which is code for drinking. And then when it comes to be time for you to start getting home, then maybe I did take Nick outside and put him in the swing and Catherine outside to play so that it would look like I was a good father when you came home. But the fact that you could read through that isn't surprising. I mean, I think a mother's intuition is really strong and I think yours specifically is really strong. So I'm sure that was really hard. How about to socialize? How did it feel to socialize? I want to hear from you both with me and without me. But let's start with, because you already alluded to it a little bit. What about without me when you would go out with friends? Which I know wasn't very often, but when you did and I was I was staying home or I was doing something else unrelated, but you were socializing without me. How did that make you feel married to an alcoholic? Well, nervous about what was going on on the home front, but I also tried to give you a lot of credit for the times that you, you know, I think we we talked in one of our calls about, you know, nine out of ten times you did pretty great, you know, like you kind of followed my rules about this is dinner and maybe it was a little bit more relaxed and it was different and that's fine, um, so it would be, it would be a little nerve-wracking to know what was going on on the home front or what was not getting done on the home front. Um, but then also just, I didn't know what to expect when I got home as far as your temperament. If you had been drinking or you were jealous or if I didn't call enough or if I didn't answer a text because I missed it because the restaurant we were at was too loud or, um, you know, your jealousy, like I, it was just so inconsistent. It was hard to really enjoy going out. Um, so that's why I think a lot of times when I did socialize with people, it was like during the day when, when I wouldn't be working or, and you would be, and the kids would be somewhere safe or I would have them with me with their kids and we would try to do something like that, you know? So like me knowing that I used to go to the zoo and meet up with friends, I I look that at the moms now and I'm wondering oh, I wonder or the you know the parents now I'm like oh I wonder if they're like not able to go out in the evenings with their girlfriends or boy you know or their friend groups yeah and this is their only social time yeah not because they have little kids but because they have a drunk husband or drunk wife mm-hmm. so um yeah I bet there's I mean there's no way that you were unique in that in, in that plan of attack to go out during the day while I was at work. So, yeah, that's got to be masking a lot of things. Yeah. Never look at... Never look at... Uh, 
you know, parents with kids, one parent with a, with kids at the zoo, quite the same again. I mean, you you just, always kind of wonder. Yeah, you're always just kind of curious. Um, what about socializing with me? What what kind of nervous system reaction or anticipation well, would you have when we were going to a neighborhood party or a work like, function or something? Uh, well, in the beginning, I had... Believe it or not, there was a little tiny bit of time that I was optimistic that you would follow, like, your plan. You know, like, oh, we don't know these people that well, and um, or we don't want to look like idiots. And so you would <coughs> kind of keep it together um, for the most part. Um, lots of arguing about who was going to drive. And, you know, you would... So there was some, it was just, I mean, it was all a mix. You know, there could be arguments about who was going to drive home, or you were only going to have this couple of beers, and then you were going to be okay, or you were going to have a beer an hour, or whatever, and you were going to be okay to drive. And finally, I just started, like, trying to ask you, like, if you have one, that is too much. It's either zero drinking, you know, and, and like, we, you know, we talked about this. Like, we talked about it when you were sober. One beer is too many beers to drink, or one drink is too many too many drinks to drink and drive. So it was going to be the designated driver had zero. And um, so then that still, it was just like, ugh, you would just argue like you wouldn't be the man if you didn't drive home. And, you know, a couple times we've even had friends like, dude, just let Sherry drive and, you know. It was embarrassing, and then it was, just became dread, because I knew that even if you did kind of keep your shit together during the time, you were just going to come home and drink a ton more, because you didn't get your fill, you know, you didn't get your fix or your need, or you had to suppress how much you wanted to drink in front of others, that it was just so much pressure. I want to ask you about the power dynamic and there's some there's a gender component to this but there's more than that you know i can, i never you and i never went anywhere where i was worried about you dominating and taking over a situation and putting me in a situation where i didn't feel in control of my own destiny that never ever worried me you on the other hand are married to a pretty strong-willed person who and then when you add the drinking on top of that, I mean, you had to leave the house sometimes, or even when we go on vacations or trips, and think there's a really high likelihood that I'm going to be in a situation where I can't control how we're going to move from destination to destination, or how I'm going to get him into bed if he's gone off the rails, or probably half a dozen other worries that you had. I never had that. Even on, I mean, I can think of really one off the top of my head and all the time, all the years we've been married, I can think of one time where you were pretty out of control drinking wise. And if I'd really needed to, I could have picked you up and carried you back to the hotel room. We were in Boston at the time. Mm -hmm. So I never was in a situation where I couldn't maintain control if I wanted to. But you were constantly in situations where, I mean, you couldn't pick me up and carry me to the hotel room. You couldn't take the keys out of my hand if I really, really, really uh, wanted to keep a hold of those keys. How does that feel to just not be in control of your own destiny 
especially with the person that you're bonded to and trust and mutual protection. And I could never out-argue you. I could never outsmart you. I could never out-convince you. So it made me feel really trapped, anxious. It made me feel stupid. Like I didn't have a brain in my head because you wouldn't ever listen or agree that I would be right. It made me feel pretty damn worthless. I knew most of the time the plan that we would have would involve a change. And then I'd have to call the babysitter and ask the babysitter if they could stay. You know, things like that. I mean, there was one time I left you and I drove home because you, we were out of out of our town and the friends said you could stay there that night because you wanted to continue drinking but I had to get oh. home with one of our infants and relieve the babysitter because it was an hour away you didn't just get in the car and leave me and I was surprised by that right. I mean that was the plan but that was the plan but if you had ever just gotten in the car and driven away and left me there you would have had to deal with you know the wrath store. of hell on yeah. the back side of that exactly because you would have there would have been no convincing you that I prioritized myself and the kids over you and how that wasn't selfish and bad. That's right. I would have been awful to you. Even Just if it awful. would have been the worst. for our own kids. Yeah, I would have been awful. I would never have understood that. I would have been relentless in telling you you were wrong. I want to push back on something you just said, but not because you're wrong, but because it surprised me. You said you could never outsmart me and you said it made you feel unworthy. First of all, you've always been smarter than me. So I, I don't think it's a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of persistence and just, you know, drunken relentlessness. So you could never, you could never out-asshole me is the way I look at it, not outsmart me. And... I expected you to express that it was really fearful to be in that situation, but I think it's really interesting, and also I think this is a universalism, that it made you feel unworthy. This goes back to the self-esteem thing. I think that's fascinating because, you know, if you explain this to an outsider who hasn't lived through it, I think the natural reaction would be, oh, that's got to feel awful to not be in control of your own destiny and you've got to feel scared for your safety, scared for your kids, um, you know, out of control. Lack of control is, is scary. But the idea that it made you feel worthless, that's kind of the point of this whole discussion. You aren't worthless. You're the only one with a rational mind in your head. You're the only one that's making good decisions and thinking about someone other than yourself. So you are as worthy as humanly possible for me now looking back in retrospect on a situation like the ones we're describing. You are the most worthy. But that doesn't matter when you're in the moment. You feel like you should be able to do more even when the facts are stacked against you. You're not as um, you know, relentless as this other person. You're not as brazenly intoxicated as this other person and 
you know he's taller enough that he can hold the car keys out of your reach so you can never get to him. So you had all these things that are restricting you from being successful in your pursuit of keeping everyone, myself included, safe. There was no, you know, it would be like if I play basketball with Michael Jordan and then I feel worthless because I can't beat him. There's no way for me to beat Michael Jordan, right? Right. So, So there was no way for you to win. And so if you said I felt helpless or scared, yeah, check both those boxes. But you say you feel worthless. I believe you, and I know that that is how you feel, felt, and I know that that's universal, how other people feel. But it's so much the point of this discussion because, you know, from just an intellectual perspective, there's nothing for you to feel unworthy about. There was nothing you could do. Nothing you could do. And I am so sorry to have ever put you in this situation, these situations. But, you know, again... We never lost the house. We never had huge financial collapse. I never had a DUI. I never had big legal problems. All this stuff. And so for me to say, come on, Sherry, it wasn't that bad, was pretty easy at the time. And there are literally millions of alcoholics right now looking at their spouses saying, come on, get over yourself. It wasn't that bad. You still got food. You still got clothes. You still got spending money. What are you whining about? It's bad. That power dynamic that's part... It might be part gender. It might be... It's definitely part how an intoxicated brain works versus an unintoxicated brain. But that power dynamic that leaves you feeling both helpless and worthless. Good luck getting over that in a hurry. Good luck just saying, oh, you're sober now. Let's move on. It's not happening. Yeah. I'm sorry this was such an emotional conversation. It's okay. It has to happen. I'm kind of amazed at how how it's affected me even this far down the road. You know, I, I can probably count on one hand the number of times in my 50 years of life where I felt truly scared for my own life or scared that I wasn't safe. I've either been in control or been in a situation where I trusted the person that was in control. All but, like I said, a handful of times in 50 years. And if you're married to an alcoholic and you have a relationship like ours, you are semi-regularly in a situation where you are unsafe. Yeah. You can't control your destiny. And the person who is in control is untrustworthy. And for people to downplay that is just a huge mistake. Untrustworthy and unstable and inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And manipulative. Mm-hmm. To get what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Danger from within. I have more questions, but I don't think they 
rise to the level of importance of the ones we've already talked about. So I think we should leave it at that. Okay. I'm sorry. And I love you. I love you too. And I hope you feel like that for the rest of your life, you'll never be in a situation like that again. I don't know if I could ever let myself get to that because I feel better and more confident and I feel like now going through all of this and feeling better that I would fight for it more. I would leave your ass somewhere and I wouldn't fucking care because I'd be sticking up for myself, be sticking up for my kids. And I do feel a lot of shame for not ever doing that. Because maybe it would have learned a lesson or two. Yeah, it would have been a terrible fight, but fuck, we probably would have already had a fight. At least it would have been a fight that was worth having. I don't know. Well, I'm sure glad to know that you've... Your recovery has carried you to the place where you feel that way. And you've got so much more... Self-esteem, strength, resilience, determination. We say in our Echoes of Recovery group, the word warrior comes up on a fairly regular basis. And you are all warriors. And the fact that you are to a point with confidence and self-esteem that you, uh, you know that you'll never let that happen again is really wonderful. I hope selfishly, and I have no room to be selfish but I hope selfishly that you also know that you'll never be put in that situation again yeah by you for sure I do feel that I do feel that yeah tough stuff but nothing to be downplayed that's for sure so so what are we watching this weekend sleeping with the enemy or Beverly Hills Cop (laughs) I think the the Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock, we need a humorous one. Yeah, we need some laughter. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.